When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Break, break, break. Bulldog 7, this is Blue 1. Troops in contact. Coordinates to follow. Platoon location as follows. Papa, uniform. 3, 5, 5, 8. Fower, 3, 2, 1. How copy, over. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey gang, have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment and it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them, truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some uh, great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. Um, I guess, spoiler alert, you're still alive, Rob. Yeah, pretty much. What was the worst thing that happened to you in prison, mate? Yeah, it's it's one of them things that you're sort of at that already at gutter level, so you can't really go much further. You just... Yeah. Is every day as bad as the other? Pretty much. But yeah, we got given tools years ago to deal with that sort of thing. And a lot of it is just, okay, this is what's happening today. What do I need to do to make my life better right now? Having a routine will just get you started and you, and you just click into it. Yeah. You know, they, they drummed that into us years ago, both of us, and, and, and it does work. You know, as bad as it gets, you go, okay, I need to get up. I need to clean my teeth. I need to cook. I need to shower. I need to make my bed. And once that starts... You're right. Worst day, I think, would have been at one point when they'd blown up the uh, power transformer for the jail section I was in. It was the middle of winter in, uh, uh, what year was that, 2011. And Afghans being Afghans, smashed through the windows in the, the wing of the, the uh, jail we were in, me and the Nigerians. And it was pretty cold and we had no power. We had no way of cooking. It was too much snow to even bring food in, so we didn't eat for we, – we didn't have any power for about a month and a half, mm. and we didn't eat hot food in that time. Um, but we, we, we got to the point where we were making we – getting firewood from somewhere and making charcoal and using that as when we could heat stuff up, heat water up once in a while. When you're freezing cold and can't do anything about it and you've got no food and you can't do anything about it, you know, it's, it's pretty grim. Yes. But after a few days of that, it's, it's not good. That was probably the worst of it, I think. I spent a heap of time with you when we were young fellas in the in the battalion. Yeah. In fact, we spent six months together in the jungle. And, uh, you know, um, if anyone was going to survive seven years in a bloody Afghan jail, I would have put my money on you anyway. I mean, you used to yeah. hide inside bloody jungle logs and shit when we're in Tully when we're playing enemy and, and sit like the natives. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you've always been one of those sort of alternative people who takes a certain strength from arduous experiences. I know that of you. I know that of you more than most people would know. I'm sort of wondering, how did you find the strength to survive through through all of that? Was it was it just something that's innately inside you, you know, and and that's what I was seeing when you, when we were young guys in the battalion together? Or was it, did you have to draw yeah. strength from structure or what was it? When you lose things, when you lose control of it, you know, it, most, most of us have spent as much time in the army as we did. You know, you're a little bit OCD at the end of it, especially if you're ex-recon bunnies. 
you sort of go, ah, if things are not how they should be, you lose your mind. I tried listening to the outside and I got done over a fair few times. That's pretty apparent in the book mm. by people helping me outside. Uh, and you, you sort of lose faith in, in what's going on. You do, you, you sense, your sense of trust just goes out the window. But again, it comes back to what I said about the routine thing. Yep. That works. It, it is. It puts everything else on the back burner. It, it, I achieved absolutely nothing by planning what I'm going to do when I get out, trying to maintain relationships with people from the outside, feeling sorry for myself. Best thing you do is just get angry and crack on. So, just channel it into something worthwhile. So finding you know, finding structure. I, I I actually don't know. I, I can't work it out. I'm, I'm in the process of looking at doing some stuff because. You know, the amount of guys that are having a hard time leaving the army and getting out of it and not having that support network there anymore, I'd, I'd like to work out how I did it so I can help our mates who are not finding it as easy as... Or I won't say I found it that easy. I'm not that good, but I found a way to deal with it mm. and it doesn't seem to have any res, residual hold over, you know, afterwards. I'm not... I don't wake up having bad dreams about it or anything. I just, it's just something that happened to me now. I just go, oh, yeah, okay, done, dusted, yeah. move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I completely get you, and I think that, that that whole structure around captivity is probably probably just as you know relevant as it as it would be the structure of army life or the structure of being a civilian. That building that structure and get, getting up every morning and making your bed, getting up and brushing your teeth, and having timings to adhere to, and 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 almost almost going back to that imposed discipline that you had while you're at Kapuka and Singleton, to then have self-discipline so the days just tick by. Side note on that that I found really interesting is is that if you stick to a routine, eventually it's not not imposed on you, but you you just do it. And you know what Afghans are like. They they sit there and watch Westerns go, what are they doing? And even even these guys, like most of the coppers here, they have no idea what they're doing. And after a while, if you pick that routine, eventually that routine, you impose your routine on them. Mm. So it got to the point where they just, when it was my time to go out, I didn't have to ask. They'd just come and do it because they knew even if my cell was open, I wouldn't leave it until it was my time. I'd clean my room every day. You know, they they couldn't understand why I didn't need to be told to do things. Mm. I, I was locking myself at, at one point. The, the guys working there, they'd get so stoned at night that I'd lock myself in the cell mm. because the guy couldn't scratch himself. He was that out of it. Mm. You know, it's. And great place to be when it's like that, but anyway. And safer, you know, safer yeah. for you to be in a locked cell. It was safer for everybody else, I think. They realised that after they tried to put me with people a couple of times. And yeah, yeah. It just didn't go so well. So they, okay, well, maybe we'll put him by himself and he'll be happy. It was much uh, better. How did an ex-soldier from the Australian Army find himself in an Afghani prison? Uh, God. A lot of those, a lot of the companies use that same ethos as the military had to work, but it's all about money. It's it's there's nothing holding people there. There's nothing stopping them from stabbing in the back. And and purely the, the nature of that country, it is so corrupt that to get anything done, you have to stick your toe in the in the cesspool at some point. Mm. That's at any level, even if you want to stay above board, everybody knows that. Even the Australian government knows that. You just cannot get stuff done unless someone gets something out of it who you're dealing with personally. Yeah. That said, there was a lot going on at the company I was working at. It wasn't the best company to start with. I, I still don't know why. There's a lot of stuff I don't talk about in the book. Mm. I just let that go because I didn't fully understand what was going on, so I just left it. Um, on the Afghan side, however, a lot of the stuff they had to like everything over there, you need to talk to someone who's a bit of a, a bit bigger than you are. And the guy they had was Hausadine, who was related by marriage to the Massoud um, family. He's married to Shah Massoud, the line of the mm. Panjir, to his sister. So he could get away with pretty much whatever he wanted. He was yeah. running pre- a, a, essentially his own prison. Mm. You know, they used to hold people for the NDS. You know, he, he was a bad dude, really, really bad guy. Um there's a there's a powerful bit in the book where right at the start where you say you know it's better to feel like you've been betrayed than to think that you missed out on it through fate through a few seconds and I think you know and and being confused at yeah. exactly how you ended up there being confused on the second order effects of what you did you know to end mm. up there 
but that doesn't take away from the fact that at some point you took things in your own hands and, and sorted some things out. So tell me about oh, that. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. But it yeah. just it literally got to the point where I just had enough. And, and again, you've known me for a long time. And yeah. you, you did see it all those years ago when people just pushed me too far and right. That's it. It was uh, there was other people involved, and yeah, yeah, it was not in a good place. So something needed to be done. It's just it. Yeah, and the contractors don't have the same. They don't have the same level of protection, or you know security that that we had tooling around in in afghanistan no. and iraq and and you were being you were being sold out and it was only well i my understanding from the book is that you were being sold out and there was only a matter of time before you were going to be killed yeah yeah and so and i know you don't like talking about it that much but i know there's people who want to hear about it you know what happened what was the events that happened uh i'd, I'd already left the company at the at the, the point that um the book starts. So I literally left the day. I just had enough. It was getting too much. I'd been there six months straight. Um, I used to run pretty much on my own over there because it was I didn't play well with the other foreigners working at the company. They were a mixture of Macedonians. There's some American guys that I helped train up, which were good. Um, but most of the time, if I, I'd use guys from the outside, I had my own pasture guys that I used as my crew on the road. I kept them away from Kabul. But I'd spend up to two weeks out on my own with them tooling around the countryside getting shot up. Usually avoiding that because I travelled mainly at night, but occasionally you either get caught out, you know, as well as I do, you get caught out somewhere in the wrong place at the wrong time mm. or just unlucky. Mm. And, it, yeah, it's I'd, I'd avoid trouble at the best of it, but I, I ran so heavy that, you know, when you run a convoy, you can't. You know, you just go as fast as the lowest truck. So I went heavy and got in a lot of fights and, Six months of that, yeah, you're starting to get a bit cagey. Mm. So between that and the mixture, I didn't like the way things were going at the company. I, I decided I was going. But these two young Americans went out in a convoy and this one guy, we'd had problems with it before, who was mixed up with houses in the Panchery guys running that side of the house in um, in the company. They are up to something again. I, I pretty much knew it. Talking to my driver and a few other dudes, he, you know, Afghans are like, they, they love gossip. They love telling, stabbing someone in the back. I think it's just in the nature of a, a patriarchal society. Everyone's trying to get up that one one little bit up the ladder mm. every day. When I found out they, where they got hit, that was the clincher for me because it was pretty – It's back then, nothing like that used to happen within the city gates at Kabul. I mean, now it happens every day, but back then, no one fires RPGs within city limits. And the fact I knew where it was and there was a police checkpoint there and they weren't all they weren't all upset about it. That yeah, it was a bit sus. Mm. So I went out there, and then, and unexpectedly turned up, and that was when yeah people started getting a bit worried. And unfortunately for old mate, I was watching everything he was doing with because I was wearing MBGs. Um, that were mine. Yeah, he just he got he got three bites of the cherry. He got told that if you want to leave, put the weapons down, hand in your ID card, go. Mm. Don't hang around. And my intention was. After that third time, I was just going to drag him out of his car, beat the crap out of him, take his guns off him, and send him on his way. Mm. However, he found it. It was he'd stick a pistol in my face to see what had happened, and he got shot for it. Mm. It was as simple as that. There's a thing over there, and you probably noticed it, the way all the commanders either have a radio and and or a pistol. They love waving the, the two around to so everybody knows that they're commanders mm. and punctuating their sentences with pistol muzzles, mm. and it seems like to go well with Westerners that have spent a lot of time on the tools. Mm. Yeah. Afterwards, I was just going, dude, no, what, what were you thinking? He just, I just couldn't get it through. Did you? That did, he thought that was going to end well. I mean, he'd seen me out there so many times and knew what I was like. They all knew what I was like. That's why those that particular group of guys avoided me because I, I didn't stand for their, their bullshit. Was, yeah. So that that night he was there was still things going on with regards to that the activities that they were trying to undertake. They were yeah. they were trying to smuggle drugs around the place. I, I'm led to believe. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, I, I, found, I only found out the depth of it years later when I was actually in jail and I got to know some of the Taliban guys. And it, it's all about the jihad. So talking to their sworn enemies and and swapping drugs for weapons and ammunition. Apparently, you can do that. That's that's okay. Mm. But 
then they go back to fighting each other with the said weapons next day. It, it, it's it's hard for Westerners to comprehend. Yeah, to look at it from a yeah, that's they they'd go down with weapons from the this house of the end dude. He was taking weapons that were being handed in by the NDS because that's the uh, Afghan secret police, which is primarily Panjshiri, about ninety five percent. So they essentially have control of all the intelligence in the country. Those get handed in to be destroyed. The weapons get handed in to be destroyed at the the UN depot up in uh, Mazar Sharif. They get signed off on by his NDS mate, who's probably a relative, that they're being destroyed, and they take those weapons. And at the time, they were using our our convoys because they're protected by the US military. Smuggle weapons down south to Kandahar, trade them for for either bales of fucking weed or um, heroin, and then they'd come back up. And they and because the Panchi, the location Panchia Valley or Panchia area it, to the, the borders, it's it's just a quick trip over the mountains into Kazakhstan, into Russia, through back through the other way into Europe. And that's what they've been doing since since the Russians left. Essentially, it's it's how it works. You know, and then they go back to fight one another, which I don't get that part of it. You know, it's, so you go down there, you go down um, there, confront him. He waves a pistol in your face after you've given him a few warnings to get out of town. He waves a pistol mm-hmm. in your face, and you know you see that as a as a threat and engage him. Yeah, well, it's pretty close. I was literally at his car window, about to grab hold of his head and drag him out. And when you see a pistol coming out, yeah, the natural reaction is to go for your, go for yours and my. You know, we all carry our rifles slung across our bodies when we move, move around vehicles and it's literally just a step back. Mm. And I was carrying him for that night um, and just jammed it into him and gave him two double taps and that was the end of it. And do you ever regret that, do you, Rob? No. No. Yeah. It's just the way it goes, you know. You, you, yeah. Big boys rules. You play with guns, you get, expect to get shot at some point. Yeah. You know, it, it, like I said, the, for them it's it's a it's a... A leadership accessory. They wave it around to to show people they're the boss. They don't understand quite comprehend the outcome of that when you do it with people who do it for a living mm. all the time, and they have done nothing else pretty pretty much. Just, yeah. It was just pure reaction. It was, okay, bang bang. Yeah. Done. And talk me through the court case or or the lack of a court case. Well, that would <laughs> even at the time I was, I was sort of a bit stunned about it. About how how eventuated and oh god because I was going okay what's going on here I thought it was a sort of prelim thing because yeah. like, my lawyer wasn't there you didn't no even know about it you didn't even know it was, it was a court case and I was standing I was standing around this office and I come Jesus. out and one of the guards is going oh this glass this glass you know this big problem big problem and I'm like yeah what's going on here and he's got a cattle okay I hope he's referring to the incident not to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out, yeah, he was referring to me. And uh, I found it a bit later on. Yeah, that was the first one. So, yeah, probably 10 minutes outside, death sentence. And, uh, yeah, not good. They threw the book at you? Um, they probably would have if he could read, I guess. Uh, no, he, he they didn't even worry about it. It was basically passing buck yeah. from what I understand. Talking to my lawyer, Kim Motley, he's... About years later, she just said, look, that guy was out of his depth completely, probably, and no one wanted to touch it. Yeah. And there was word from that particular government at the time to make an example of me because he was having problems with the Westerners in the country because he was trying to get the Taliban on side so they'd come to the table. Mm. And the only way he could do that was by slagging off the Americans and the rest of the Westerners in the country. And, yeah. So, So for a time there, you became a political pawn. I think so. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think much was ever going to get done at that point. It had, it definitely had to go through the whole way. Mm. And I th- there's a, a few things that had come about. There was two changes to the government, one in Australia and one in, in uh, Afghanistan. Kim Motley coming on board, who probably knows the ins and outs better than most Afghan lawyers and judges of their system because she helped set it up as a contractor before she went um, private. Over there, I think that the Afghan government is probably more stable than the Australian government, mate. They've probably had less changes of government than what we've <laughs> yeah, had. They've, they've had less less leadership issues. I mean, that's, that's one thing with the Australian government. I was severely disappointed that uh, Julie Bishop got out of got out of the game to mm. the extent she did recently because, uh, yeah, I think she 
she had a lot to do with pushing things in the right direction. Yeah. Um, through he was the final guy there. I ran past her, Rob, on the city to surf, and um, she did, okay. she doesn't know who I am. And I said, uh, it was the day after the leadership spill, and I said to her, "Why the hell weren't you voted in?" And she goes, <laughs> she, was, "She was she I was more yeah. I was more out of breath than her, but I made sure I uh, powered past and said it said it at the time." Um, yeah, yeah, we've missed a trick there for leadership in Australia. I think I think uh, it, it is unbelievable. I, 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 yeah. One of the only real leaders yeah, we've had in I, recent I, I, years. I cop a lot when I get back to Australia on occasion. Um, that why do you why do you live in why do you live in South Africa? It's such a third world country, and, and it's all like you know you see in the politics of Australia at the moment. Yeah, it's it's as bad. It's yeah. it's ridiculous. It, it, there just doesn't seem to be any leadership in in much of the world politics, except for probably China, Russia, and North Korea. You know, that's <laughs> their leadership's from and cracking on the right direction. I'm not saying it's the right way of doing things, but you. I think uh, Australia. I think Australia is just. Uh, we're just changing our leaders like so often so that America doesn't come and topple any of them. Hey, tell me, man, what, what, were the, what were the conditions like in the prison? Like, no bullshit. What, what was the room like? What was, the, what was it like? The NDS holding cells I was originally in, they were as grim as you could probably imagine. It was just bare concrete. There was blood and vomit everywhere. Um, Did you have a bed? No, not at that point. Um, later on down the track, the, where I was being held during the court cases in town, it was basically just a, um, a holding area. It was yeah. built probably for 400 people that they housed over a 1,000 at any one time. So it's literally people sleeping in the corridor. It was more the noise than anything else, especially visiting hours because the this one little small area where everybody was, they were just yelling and shit and it was just constant constant noise and it just did your head in mm. um after that when i got moved to polacharki itself the zoom was pretty bad the that was the the first year and i did was starting to go lose the plot a bit in there because it was rough mm. you know um and that was literally just a, a bare cell that i could i could touch both sides standing up mm. And I had enough room to lay down in there pretty much. And it was just a little box. And, and, there was, and what a hole in the corner to shit in or how that yeah, worked? Pretty much. Yeah. And so what you're laying on um, laying on the concrete at night and stuff? Yeah. I had, a, I had like a blanket and a, another blanket folded up to lay on that. But it was it was just it was just absolutely brutal because you, you you're let out maybe once every day or two. Now just one second. Just one second, Rob. Just one second, mate. Back in one RAR. Back in the back in the nineteen nineties, you used to sleep on the floor of your room. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't have a bed, right? No. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was it was probably good preparation for all this thing. You're not you're not the only one. So you're not the only one in recon between that used to do that. But but um, but I, I think that people wouldn't realise that just how brutal it is trying to sleep on a, on the ground every night if you're not in the military. Like, I mean, I'm 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 used to it as well. Although I've got to have a webbing and rifle to actually go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that. I, I was away this weekend camping and it was getting a bit stuffy in the tent. So I just, I went outside and I was sleeping on the ground and I'm thinking, yeah, something not right. I just didn't have the webbing to lay on. It just didn't feel right. Yeah, it just doesn't feel right. Back or something. I don't know. So what about the room that you ended up in for the, for the best part of the seven years? Was that the... Was that like the size okay, of the- yeah, was, well, I ended, I ended up with this, essentially this entire wing where they kept all the foreigners and no one went up there. Yeah, and what, why is that? Uh, they had to keep- literally left alone. What, why is that, that Rob? A- why is that? They're trying to uh, keep you separated from Taliban or? It was a weird mix of people that were up there. It was mainly the Nigerian guys I'd met earlier hmm. um, and a couple of Ugans that. But then there was, there was a, a few- it was always people going in and there was there was one Russian Taliban guy that was there who actually ended up getting on with really well. He was he was a good dude. And he eventually got released. They took him back to Russia. Um You know that makes and, my uh, skin crawl, just the yeah, thought of Chechnyan down near Kandahar once too. And and as, and when I first met him, I was geez, he looks a lot like those dudes that was shooting at me down there. Um yeah. but yeah, this was basically a big open area and we were, we were locked in there during the day, but mm. you know. After say eleven o'clock, they opened it for a few hours and go down to the canteen and buy extra shit and all 
us and had go down the yard. But I, I pretty much stayed there for nearly two years. I never, never really went outside of that joint because I didn't need to. Um, the Nigerians, I was getting stuff in through uh, people outside. So I'd just get extra stuff for the Nigerian guys and the, whoever else was up there at the time. Mm. Um, there was a Ukrainian guy up there. I talk about, about him, the book engineer. Um, there's a couple other young Russian guys. The thing, the thing is, everyone, um, all these guys, they all did the conversion and everything. And, you know, so they played the game and, and I just absolutely refused. I've got that written down yeah. to ask you later. And next to yeah. it, I've got an asterisk and I've written... What the fuck would I ask you that? Because <laughs> I already know the answer. Um, yeah, so they did. They did. Um, the, they did play the game. Yeah, it was hmm. after I left that joint. They moved us over to to um, the other block, and immediately when I got over there, just from how the commander was, I was an okay to see this guy's no bullshit. He knows what he's doing, and I actually even even at the start of it, I didn't. We didn't have any comms outside or anything at that point, and we were locked in the cell pretty much most of the day until um, we got let out for exercise. But you can see this guy being trained properly by US and British military and police. There's routine, you stick to it, everything's got to be clean. You give my guys shit, you're going to wear it. It was, it was really, really good. And eventually I established a relationship with that guy and he sort of mellowed over the years. And then he went away for a long time and a few... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Other guys took over, but then they brought him back to get things back on the straight. Now, fair and honest the whole time mm. until he got until you pushed him, mm. and then he was one of the brutal, most brutal guys I've ever seen. Mm. At, at one point, they, he was down south, and there was a riot in the jail, and they set fire to stuff and that because they knew he wasn't there. And they flew him back within two hours, and he went in alone with a baton and a radio and sorted out about five or six guys on his own. And it was like, yeah, it was, it was pretty impressive. Mm. A really good ad for Motorola because he was beating a guy unconscious with a Motorola radio and, as, and then talking on it. As you like, do. It's, that's a selling point right there. It's, it's put up with so much stuff. And over, yeah, as I said, over the years, he mellowed and he allowed me to have a, have a phone. He was the one who shifted me. Like the one his predecessors, that's the little gap there. They put me with other guys and they tried to stand over me all the rest of it and then they would get asked if they could get moved away from me after that. Mm. Um, Did anyone try and knock you off while you were in there? But that was mainly political. I mean, the funny thing is that the, the, people, the Afghans who treated me with the most respect, how do you expect to be treated by other human beings with the Taliban? Mm. Absolutely. That doesn't surprise they, me at all. But the, they, were, they, treat, they treated me like, okay, we know, we know who you are. We know what you did. And... They knew a lot of things. They, they knew where I'd served in the army, which sort of blew my mind. I don't know how they got that. Is that right? Um, because I didn't speak to anyone about that the entire time I was there. Mm. And they, um, when we didn't have phones in there, they're the ones who were getting communication through. This one guy, Hakimi, I spoke to, he, he was straight up tier one guy and five or six languages, fluent English, a really, really funny bloke. He, 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 I got on very well with him. And it was, the funny thing was, when he left, he said, if you're still here when we get back into power, he said, when, not if. He said, I'll take, I'll take you to the airport myself. We'll make sure you get home. Yeah, right. You know, he was that sort of guy. And then, and then as he's walking away from me, he goes, you sure you don't want to convert? Because then we could be, we could be brothers, not friends. And I'm going, oh, no, sorry, mate. I go, you know, that's just how it is. Mm. And he said, okay, yeah, no problem. You know, it's, it's my job. I have to ask. You know, okay, that's cool. Off you go. But I'll, I'll probably learn a lot how, how the religion from a Sunni's perspective, works. Mm. Um, I found out a lot of interesting things about where the money comes from. Uh, you know, they, they use contractors too. They have any, they showed us videos of these dudes trained in Pakistan. They're Russian, they're Irish guys up there teaching them bomb-making stuff. They like the Chechens coming over and causing trouble, but they don't like them, don't like working with them. Yet. And I found that from a, a group that I bumped into outside down in Kandahar, just north of Kandahar. They tend to be on their own. Mm. They they go okay. You go. They could give an AO and just mm. stay away from the from the Afghans because mm. Afghans always 
cop a lot of stuff, a, a lot of shit from um, the foreign fighters because he, like the Al Qaeda guys, go, oh, you're not Muslim enough. You know, mm. you're not hardline enough. Mm. And, you, and, you, and when you, I, was, I don't know if it's sort of a bit, you know, Stockholm syndrome or whatever, but from, I, I learned to respect a lot of the Taliban fighters because they're actually fighting for something. They, they, they just want to be left alone, take the world over and blow everything up. They just, okay, we just want to be, do our thing over here. You guys go over there and leave us, let us be. Things are fine. Mm. Al Qaeda, I met, a, I come across a few IS guys towards the end. They were, they were absolutely hated by everybody. But um, Daesh, uh, mm. Islamic State guys, uh, they were starting to bring a few in. A lot of them were ex Taliban, younger guys who just wanted to cause trouble. Mm. So they go, oh, get out of the Taliban, we'll go with these dudes. Growing up in a patriarchal society, you're trying to get one over everybody else. So this new, Hardline organization comes along and all these guys are like, yeah, let's do that. Mm. More hardcore. Off they go. And and for a while there, they were, they were started fighting on three or four fronts because not only were the government, the, the Yanks go, going after them, Taliban and Al-Qaeda were as well because they were mm. causing too many problems for them. But that, yeah, I did, one or two of those dudes, the Taliban guys are good. The Al-Qaeda guys, I tried to stay away from them. There was They were pretty hardcore. Mm. Uh, one of them was actually okay. He was an Egyptian guy, but the majority of them, yeah, no. Nah. Mm. They just want nothing to do with it. They kill mm. you as soon as look at you. But essentially, yeah, that's that's what sort of kept me out of that period, kept me out of trouble. They, they said to me, look, don't hurt anyone else mm. and we'll look after you. And they basically let everybody know he's with us. Mm. Don't touch him. So I was and did you have did you have um did you have any knowledge of Australian forces still in in and around Afghanistan. I mean, you you know now, I guess that my, my platoon and I were there in two thousand and ten. I was very aware of where yeah. you where you were. Uh, in yeah. fact, we 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 often would agitate and raise and raise your profile with visiting. Um, maybe you don't know this, but when we had visiting dignitaries, yeah. we'd I often have, I have heard through the back channels. Yeah, we'd often so, agitate and raise your name to any minister or anyone who came to visit, which they did quite a lot. So I know that you're you are aware of us being there in 2000, 2010, part of two thousand nine. Mm. But what I want to ask you is, two thousand eleven, you know, you had Osama bin Laden, you know, killed. What went through the prison? What did they talk about the night that happened? Yeah, that was. Well, I first I first heard about it from that. I was actually with the Nigerians at that point. And that Russian guy came in crying and shit to me, and I'm like, "What's what's wrong, man? Someone died. He goes, yes, yes, they've killed the sheep." And I'm so like, it took me a while to cotton on what he was actually talking about because that's they never called him Osama or whatever. It's always the sheep. You couldn't see how he's known over there. And then I worked out what they were talking about. Then I then I spoke to a few people outside, and I went, "Oh yes," and and then oh yeah. I was smiling for a couple of days, and everyone else is this this like funeral dinners being held, and oh, I was mad. Were you? Everyone were you was crying? Were you smiling on the inside, or were you were you openly? No, no I was letting them know. How's that going for you now? Uh, Jihad, what's what's going on with that? It's popping off at Yeah. I wonder how. I mean, I know a lot of USSF guys um, that left that left the army days and weeks later because they're like, well, that's it. Job's done. Mission complete. Yeah, job's done. I wonder how many uh, Al-Qaeda went, oh, well, that's done. Or if that's not in their in their mantra or their makeup. I think a lot of them did at the start. And they either went, went if they were locals, they would have gone just jumped back on board with the Talib. But, um, you know, you know as well as I do, the whole situation with families and, Mm. Organisations in that country is pretty fluid. You know, what one person might be um, Afghan National Police or Army, and then his brother is a, a full blown tier one Taliban dude who's cutting necks over mm. the border. And they meet up at Eid for, you know, to swap stories. You know, it's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. But um, yeah, because I was with, with the Andre at the time and we got on so well, there was a noticeable shift in his attitude about things after that because he stayed there for about another year. Mm. Oh, actually, no, not that long. He got released at the end of that year. Okay. And he, I mean, he he, did, he had a problem with the Taliban anyway because his first trip over, he did a lot of, he went, he went through Pakistan, did a lot of fighting, went back out again. Then he came back over and the, the Afghans that were picking him up essentially handed him over to the NDS to get themselves off the hook. So he, he had about as much respect for 
like the local nationals as I did at that point. But he, he was he was like hardcore. He said he'd stick with his prayers and that, and he'd be training every day. And then he'd, he'd come and borrow my iPod or whatever to listen to Metallica because he still liked Metallica, even though he was jihadi. I was trying to put the two together there. But anyway, whatever. We had some good we had some good conversations, and and we can become pretty good friends. And and he was a good dude. But the shift was after after they got him in Pakistan and you know he, he just sort of went well people who are who are trying to get a proper Muslim country going under the Taliban and I don't like them too too much because they sold me out. Mm. So yeah I might as well go home to Russia. And um I don't know what he did. I think he might have done a bit of a deal with them because it, it happened at speed and he'd been there for a long time. He'd been in jail for like eleven years. Mm. Um Jeez, really he's still in his only in his thirties still so he must have been really young when they got him. Mm. But um there was a bit of a shift and but yeah. he was he was sort of the only one at that time that I could really see gauge it. it from, I guess. And see it so, in because they he would have had some characteristics and cultural traits of a Westerner, I, I assume. So you could probably identify it more. He was from St. Petersburg. Um so yeah, like you said, he had more Western traits. He wasn't from some hillbilly part of Russia. He, he you know and he spent time in the military, so there was that aspect of it as well. There were certain things he'd do. What a fascinating guy. Yeah, he actually was, and you know, and his story how he how he ended up in Islam it, it was it was um, probably not a lot lot different to how a lot of people end up there. But he when he did exactly the same thing conscription in the army um, he would he'd been a he worked for an air de- air defence missile air defence battery basically as a, as a radar operator. So he's pretty technical as well. But he of course he had to jump through the hoops so he could shoot an AK. He, he liked his kickboxing and MMA, so you know he's a big guy, very fit. Um, and when he he said when he left the military, he was just drinking too much, too many drugs. And then one day, when during the winter time, when he stayed around with no money, and there was a guy locking up a mosque, and he said, "Come inside." And he went in there, and he was sort of blown away by how clean and white it was. And they said, "Yeah, you can sleep here tonight, and we'll talk in the morning." Wow. They fed him, and but then again. I saw that same thing play itself out with this other Al Qaeda guy I speak about in the book, this doctor, and he was a used to watch him doing the same thing, um, grooming all the young guys who'd been picked up on drug charges because essentially I almost guarantee ninety nine percent of the got the the suicide bombers in Afghanistan uh, are drug addicts that are being released from prison. Yep. Almost guarantee it. And I was talking, I was talking to Kimmy about it, you know, but how do you justify it? Because the whole thing was suicide in, in the craft. And he said, Well, it's like this, the Americans have their have their drones. We have these guys. And if if Allah didn't want us to use them, he wouldn't put us in, in, in front of us. And he said, at the end of the day, when we're back in power, we're going to take them down to the Olympic Stadium and, and take their heads anyway. So this way they have they have a uh, a use. And I'm like, okay, so what about the whole thing that when you're telling them where they're going to go, go to heaven and be, it's going to clean the slate with the big fella or all the rest of it, what's, what's going on there? And he said, oh, well, that's between them and other. There's nothing to do with us. Mm. Caveats for everything. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's, but it is the Sunni side of it because the Shia, the Shia aren't like that at all. Right. They don't read into it too much. It's, it's a guideline, not the be-all, end-all. Yeah. When you're talking to Shia. Jesus, that's just incredible. Mm. I probably know too much about it without actually falling into the trap of it, which is a bit scary. <laughs> yeah, worries me sometimes. Did you did you have to spend much time with Australian intelligence when you got back and debrief? Uh, I spent pretty much none. They probably watch. They're probably still watching me now, just waiting for me. Did you? Well, you, you know that I know these guys, but the the big the first big one was in when Todd Langley got killed because mm. he was a good friend of mine, um, and then almost exactly a year later. Blaine Didham's got killed. You know how tight him and I were. And mm. and I just can't let that shit go. Mm. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen, no matter how nice you are to me. Mm. And yeah. and then hearing about it, you know, you hear so-and-so got waxed. So, and it's like, okay, mm. no worries. I'll just put that, just file it away for later use. And, and that's that's how you, every time you sort of come, oh, this guy isn't so bad, you just drag that back out and, and did you, don't go down that road. Did you feel sold out by the government while you were there? Did you, Rob, or? No. Not at all. Yeah. Like I said, big boys rules. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I, I know how things play out in, mm. in Australian politics. Mm. But they're not, unless they, it's useful to them, they're not really going to help you. Mm. And they'll, they'll go as far as they can. Even before that, mm. with, with that sort of thing, I've, I've found that 
personal relationships with people will get you further mm. than what the rules say or what should be done or what's the right thing. Mm. You know, it, it's, I mean, the amount of stuff that they did, uh, some of the embassy staff there were, were really, really pushing it. They got told to pull their heads in. Mm. They just did it anyway, um, which I'm forever in their debt for. Mm. But there was a few individuals that went far beyond that just purely because they're, one, because of the how they were as people and, two, because they met me, they'd spoken to me at length about it and they go, hang on a minute, this something's not right here. Mm. This, this doesn't add up. There's, there's more to it than what anyone is saying. And in the end, I think that's that's what turned it all around because that's, like I said, change the, change the government, having Kim on board and she actually had details, then people started realising, oh, we might get looked at a little harder ourselves if this all comes to light. So let's mm. just quietly make him go away. And it's a mixture all those things come together. Yeah. Kim sort of steered it. The uh, ambassador at the time at the embassy, mm. Matt, he he had a lot to do with it because of his relationship with um, mm. uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Afghanistan and, of course, the president. And, yeah, I've come out of it with a clean slate, which is beaten odds at <laughs> And then you had then you had Julie Bishop as well, who was pushing it from this end. Yeah, and it's, um, my 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 little sister early days she she pushed hard and but pushed in the wrong direction. But again, it was that that, that thing that destroys the relationships you think you have with people mm. because they either want something out of it, mm. like how long can we keep this ticket on so we can just bleed them for money, mm. or there's some other game that you, you that they're playing that you, you're not quite understanding. And my sister and I had a, had a had issues at certain points that it sort of squared away in the end. But it was purely because you, you're dealing because the communications were so fragmented the entire time. And I'm finding out things inside the jar how things should work, mm. and telling her. And she said, "Well, who did you hear that from?" I was like, "A telephone guy." And she's like, oh, "Well, they're not going to tell you the truth." Mm. The thing is. That I found out they actually can't. If, if uh, Hakimi is one of the, the guy was a mufti. I mean, that's as, as almost as high as you can get as a as a religious dude in, in Islam. Mm. And he can't lie. Mm. If you if you ask him for help, ask explain this to me. Mm. He he has to tell you the truth. If it's jihad, well, that's a different story. You bullshit all day. You know, mm. It's just how it is. But if someone asks for help, they have to help you. Mm. And everything that he told me later on when Kim got involved ran parallel with that. It was exactly what she said. Yeah, no, he's, he's right. Yeah. He's actually right. This is how it works. Was there any other Westerners in, in the jail with you, Rob? There was a couple um, over the years. So when, when I was there, there was uh, a British, most of it most of it was just Afghan bullshit, uh, trying to get money out of mm. um, contract stuff. And, you know, Afghan businessmen will set something up. Mm. You'll get a, a white face in there to speed things along for dealing with people from outside the mm. country. Mm. As soon as as soon as it comes to light, there's some dodgy shit going on. Afghan guy skips to <laughs> skips to the Emirates, and the white face gets gets left holding the bag. Mm. And I mean that happens everywhere. I mean I just come back from a, a job in Iraq, which exactly the same thing started happening, but I was a token white face, and having done it before. I was a little bit smarter this time. I just pulled the pin and got out of there. Yeah. It was didn't get paid, which sort of sucks, but, you know, at least I kept out of jail this time. So, yeah, there was a bill at the start. Uh, later on in the track, of course, uh, there was the Nigerian guys. Learned a lot about how the drug trade works from then. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Then when we moved to the other block, I met um, Bevan, who was speaking out of the book, who's a South African guy, got done for drugs, but, again, Funnily enough, the same people were involved. That was with dudes, the Macedonians who were working at my company, previously worked with him as well as one of the American guys who were in the But There was another guy who got left holding the bag. He was working demining. He came back to work for another company on, on the security aspect of it after doing a few courses overseas um, and finds out when he gets in country, he's going through passport control and um, finds out that his name's on a warrant for one of these demining vehicles they didn't put pay tax on and so he apparently owed the, the Afghan government you know some ridiculous amount a million dollars in taxes and bullshit because again they couldn't find the Afghan guy who ran the company because he pissed off um, and that, again Kim got him out there's a few others over the years but generally 
I was on my own the entire time. I, I, yeah. And Bevan and I were probably together the longest because we shared a room for a bit and, you, and he'd been there for a long time and yeah. was literally just waiting to get out. Unfortunately, when he did finally get the year leading up, his first his mum died of cancer mm. he, and then his dad lasted about two weeks after he got back mm. and then he died of cancer himself last year. So, yeah, not cool, but did he? at least he died in there. Yeah. Like the old... Um, Ukrainian did. It was, yeah, yeah. It wasn't cool. Yeah. Um, there were other guys around that they were, they were mixed up the drug trade or they, they actually didn't do anything. Mm. You know I mean, or they said they didn't do anything. I and I was about the only person who what, actually what, admitted. <laughs> talk me talk me through um, being told that you're getting released. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it was just another day. I got up, mm. did my stuff. Did all push-ups and talked to the cat. That's cat that was sort of kept me sane for a few years. One of the guys comes up and tells me it's time to go. I said, Where are we going? I said, Home. You're going home. And I said, yeah, Fuck off. Mm. Don't believe it because it's just that yeah, bullshit. Another day of it. And then I'm listening to what's going on because at that point I had a pretty good understanding of, of mm. the language. Mm. I've thankfully forgotten a lot of it, which is great. But yeah. And sent him on his way and just kept on doing what I normally do. But I just, in the back of my mind, I was going, hang on a sec, because I've talked to Kim the night before and she'd been pretty cagey about something. And I'm going, I knew she was in country. And I'm going, okay, something's, about, something's up. Mm. Something's definitely up. Mm. Because she was sort of trying to hint to me um, that something was there. Mm. And she said, what, what's, what's the first meal you want when you get out? And I'm thinking, why is she asking me that? Like, out of the blue. It's mm. like, okay. Anyway... Another old friend of ours from the battalion, Big Ivan, mm. who stuck with me, he'd been working the embassy contract running up for years and then he'd moved on to another one. But he, he was, he'd been the, one of the, the guys who'd been through the whole thing with me mm. from the start and was always there. And then out of the, he, his guy, his turp on this new job he was working, had some good contacts at the jail. And they, they brought this other, other cop that spoke a lot of English um, who I actually thought had been stabbed and killed because he, in a fight in mm. there uh, about a month previous, but he turned up back. So I was pretty stoked that he's still alive because the amount of blood that was on the floor when I actually got out of my cell mm. um, was pretty, I thought he's got to be dead, mm. but he didn't and he ended up coming back in. Oh, mm. they maybe come in to work because they you don't, they can't get you to leave. And I said, well, what's going on? You're going home. You, you've been part. Uh, okay, cool. But give me a, give me half an hour. I was packing my stuff. And then we went up to the commander's office and, um, Ivan's there and he he found out through his guy that something was afoot and he, he was planning on coming out that day anyway and he said, oh, what's going on? And, I, and then I had my phone on me so and, and Kim sends a message and she said, oh, I'm on my, on my way with Jess. Jess was a, a reporter from one of the Washington papers who had been working out there and very, very funny girl. Um, she's working in Washington now, but she was the only reporter that, that sort of didn't, chased me for the story she just she came out and said would you be interested talking at some stage i don't want to talk to you now but because mm. i'm doing a, a story on your old boss mm. I'm like, okay and she turned up as well and then not long after that we start dealing getting everything sorted out funnily enough at the at the time because the security situation on the ground the, the embassy couldn't actually get to the jail to sign me out so just stood in for the Australian embassy and she's the one who actually signed the paper to get Jesus me out. Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, oh, God. And that was it. And then we drove out in, in, in Kim's car. It, That's surreal. With the company. She, does, she works for a, uh, a security company over there doing all their legal stuff, a British company. And in return, they give her a place to stay and a, a vehicle and driver when she needs it. And um, we're done with within two hours and pretty pretty surreal actually. It was that's dangerous, sort of, isn't it? Le- leaving in that car as well, like because you don't know, you never know what's going to happen when you get out those gates. Well, yeah, but I, I, at least I was with people I, I knew, and I was like, yeah. And right. it took we ha- I had to hang around for another week mm. until until um, longest week of your life. Oh yeah, it was a long week, man. <laughs> it was a long week, yeah. but it was good because it gave me a bit of bit of time to. Mm. to get things sorted in my head and I spent a bit of time wandering around in the town with, with Kim doing stuff. Yeah. Um I went I went to a barbecue and there was a woman from an Australian journalist who works for 
in a minute. She was working for an American company. She worked for somebody else there. And she was less than nice to me, but she had no idea who I was because mm-hmm. she's like, and, and what's your story? Who, who, and, and she had no idea who I was. So one of the British guys who worked at the company there, he's going, oh, he's with us. And she's, oh, another James Bond wannabe. Oh, you're you're boring. I'm not going to talk to you then. I said, yeah, keep, keep thinking on those lines. And off she went. Just would have paid money to see her face when Which she found sees out. the stories of his mates and she'd been sitting directly across from me at this barbecue. But um, yeah, got back to Australia, met mum and dad at the airport and yeah. that was it. Awesome. It was over pretty pretty quickly. Um, just a- And the seventh circle, mate, that's available through Amazon, Booktopia, was all over the yeah. place when Christmas. In the US, I think Amazon and Book Depository or yep. something. Yep. Is one they do as well. Mm. Um, there is there is an audio book one. I can't remember who does that. Off the top of my head, I should probably should have written Bol- that down. Is that Bolinda? That's the one. Yeah. And uh, who's who's going to play Rob Langdon in the movie, mate? Um, I'd like to get that sorted out because it's it's coming up. But we'll see how it goes. That's something that's beyond what... You don't want me to talk about it, do you? It'll be a uh, fucking ripper of a movie. There's a okay, so there's a, there's a there's a fairly reasonably well known Australian actor who works in America in America who managed to get hold of the book somehow, and he quite liked it apparently. So I'm, God, I'm that'd, that'd be that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Rob Langdon, thanks, mate, for such a candid chat, and I know that. Yeah, I I can't wait to catch up and have a beer with you and tell some tell some more lies about how good we used to be. <laughs> we talked about still it. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture. Lessons are self-paced, and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. There's a one-off payment of $99 for the complete program. Check out the website on www.warrioru.com.au. That's warrior and the letter U. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.